Uh, for those of you who have been part of our series the past few weeks in the book of Judges, you may kind of be asking, so what's up with this book? I mean, I get the Gospels, I read those stories, and I'm so encouraged by the work of Jesus, the letters of Paul, and the instructions, the book of Proverbs, and all this wise, you know, practical advice for a living. And then there's the book of Judges, which, if you read that recently, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like a YouTube video of train wrecks. I mean, just train wreck, next train wreck, next train wreck, next train wreck. High def, slow motion, train wreck after train wreck. And it's in the Bible. God puts it in there for us to to get an up-close look at lots and lots of failure. And it's interesting, the failure is by God's people. The failure is of Israel. And it is repetitive, continuous, over a very long period of time. Interesting thing, this book is written by Jewish writers. They're recording their own failures. And so it makes us, what's up with this book? Why is this in there? Um, Israel looks to be so incredibly messed up. And so again, what's going on with the book of Judges? And if I'm losing you, I mean, if I'm losing you tonight, let me explain in the book Judges. So we've got moral failures, spiritual failures uh, by God's own people, and it is a cyclical thing. We've talked about that. I won't show the slide again this week, but there's a cycle in Judges. Israel drifts from God, turns her back on Yahweh. Israel sins. Israel begins to bow down to the idols of neighboring nations. God turns Lucifer, allows her to make her choice and suffer the consequences of those choices. And so she falls under the oppressive yoke of some foreign king, treated harshly, cruelly. After a period of time, Israel falls to her knees, cries out to God. He hears their cry. He raises up a savior, a judge. He rescues his people. Repeat. Same thing. Same thing. Same thing. They continue to fall and hit the reset button. Judges 2, verse 11. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Judges 2, 19. The Israelites refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. Chapter 3, verse 7. The Israelites again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. Chapter 3, verse 12. Once again... Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 6, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 13, again, the Israel, uh, verse 1, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So, yeah, there it is. That's the book we're talking about. In the book of Judges, people are a mess. People are a mess. It is a reverse highlight reel of the Bible. It is the Bible's low light reel. And this is a book that can seem just weird. That is, unless you are willing to hear your story and their stories. Ups and downs, highs and lows, rising up, falling, drifting, 
into loving someone or something other than God, getting beat up by life, getting hurt, getting bruised, crying out to the Lord on your knees in prayer. That's not just their story. If we're honest, that's our story. That's every person's story. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so it's a book that gives us a blow by blow of what real life is like. And more importantly, the book of Judges reveals to us boldly and clearly that God is in the middle of history, not us. That God is calling the shots in the universe, not us. His mercies are on full display chapter after chapter through these episodes in Israel's history as he chooses to bless his people and to rescue his people despite their continual failures. His justice is also on display as he allows his people to choose, as he honors and respects their choices, and part of that is allowing them to experience those choices fully and completely with all of their consequences. He allows them to choose a path other than following him and then to experience what life is like when they move from underneath his shelter, from underneath his care, from underneath his love. It's a book about how God loves us and how God honors our choices, even when our choices lead us away from him. He allows us through this book to get a glimpse of what life looks like separate from the creator, separate from the author of life, separate from the one who holds history in his hands. God never forces Israel nor us to follow him, to obey him. Ultimately, God will let you have it your way. He will let you get what you choose, what you want. I talked to a mom this morning who came to me and was asking for prayers because her son keeps repeating this cycle of getting on drugs. She was telling me about that, and she was telling me how her parents, the grandparents, continue to bail him out, continue to kind of coddle, and that just fuels this cycle. That, and she said, I just, I just need to let him choose that and experience that and pray. Mother's love. God does that for his people in the book of Judges. And guess what? When a person or people choose to turn their backs on God, when they choose to seek safety and security and meaning in something or someone other than God, a false God, if you will, there's a harvest there of disgrace and destruction. That's what happens when we move away, when we go out of alignment with the one who holds the world in his hands. And thankfully, the book of Judges, it shows us God's amazing grace because there he is, ready to hear their cries, ready to answer their prayers, ready to accept them back in his embrace. And so it, in many ways, points toward Jesus, the ultimate Savior, the ultimate judge, who on the cross is both God's justice and God's grace in its fullness. So in Judges, we see that God is still there, that God is still interested in 
his people's lives, even when they turn away, even when they turn their backs on him, he is in pursuit. He will not abandon them. He's waiting for them to turn back. He's waiting for them to cry out. So here's the situation in Judges chapter 4, today's version of this cycle. Judges 4, 1 through 3, after Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin. He turned loose of them. A king of Canaan, Jabin reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in, hope I can get this, <laughs> Harasheth Agayim. And because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. So, here we go again. And the Lord had rescued his people. He had given them peace. Once again, they fell away. Once again, they began to worship idols. Once again, they began to do things that dishonored the name of God. And the consequence of this is that God has turned loose and said, Have it your way. So now they're under the oppressive yoke of this, of this king in Canaan and his right-hand man, Sisera. The oppressive power of, of this king of Canaan was mostly experienced through the cruelty and the violence of this commander of his armies, of this guy Sisera. And with his military that featured nearly a thousand iron chariots, he dominates Israel for two decades. And they may not have intended this. Certainly they didn't intend to suffer but this is what they ultimately chose because they chose to separate themselves from their God, from their protector, from the one who loved them, from the one who brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And so broken and bloodied under the oppression of this foreign power, Israel finally wakes up. There is a sort of revival. There are people on their knees crying out to God because finally they understood we have, we've moved away. And so they pray. Judges 4, 4 through 8. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinuam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go and take 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give them into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. So we have this woman named Deborah. She's a wife, we learn here. We learn in the next chapter she's a mom. We learn that she's a prophetess, and we learn that she is the leader of Israel at this time. Now, she is a little different from the other judges in this book, and no, it's not just because she is a woman, um, but she is a little different because she is actually leading the people before 
they cry out to God because of the oppression. She is a leader um, as we come into her story. Um, She doesn't just appear as a farmer or someone else who God speaks to. She's already leading. The other uh, judges have been called out of their ordinary lives to lead at the extraordinary time. She's already doing that. Um, Israelites were taking their disputes to her. They were letting her decide on um, small matters, important matters. They would go to, to, to let her inform them with her wisdom, her legendary insight. And I find it interesting, we've got this description, she would receive people there at the palm of Deborah, and, and I, I was just thinking in modern time, you know, um, it's not uncommon for a court building or um, some, you know, federal offices or something to, to bear the name of some famous person, but almost never does it happen while they are still alive. Well, she, she is so revered and honored by the people that, that her place is the that's, the, that's the palm of Deborah over there. She's got her court building named after her. So she calls this man named Barak or Barak and passes on God's message for this fellow. He is to call out 10,000 folks from these two tribes and he is to take on this Sisera. And it looks like Barak had already been called but, but perhaps wasn't doing what he knew he was supposed to do. So he says, okay, okay, I'll go, but only if you go with me. Now, You can see this in a couple of different ways. One is, let's say, more charitable. One is less charitable. Let's start with the less charitable way you can see this. You could say, number one, look at this guy. He's a coward. He's scared of Sisera. He's unwilling to do what God has asked him, or reluctant at least to do that. And then the more charitable way of looking at Barak here is that he respects Deborah so much and values her input and insight so much that he wants her to go with him to counsel him on this mission. Right? And the Hebrew, I'm told, I'll just be honest, I, I don't read Hebrew well enough to, to make this judgment on my own, but I'm told that the Hebrew tends more toward the latter, more charitable view. The English, at least NIV, tends to make Barak look pretty bad. All right? So we'll pick it up in verses 9 and 10. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way, here's the part that sounds less flattering, because of the way you're going about this, this this honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun, Napoli, 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now, again, you can read that as, wow, this Barak guy is quite the coward. Um, I mean, I'll go with you. Uh, and everything, but I mean, I'll go, but you need to come with me. And then she says, okay, but the glory won't be yours. The glory will go to a woman. Uh, more likely, though, Deborah is simply sta- is, is prophesying. We know that she was a prophetess. She is just telling him, this is what's going to happen. At the end of the day, a woman is going to receive the glory, not necessarily that she's taking it away from him, just this is the way this story is going to play out. And really... Think about him in the story. He never asks not to go. He never says, not going to do it. He never tries to, to squirm out of the mission. And Deborah in the story, she never picks up a weapon. She never leads troops into battle. This is really kind of a partnership story. And I, for one, I would do exactly what Barak did. I mean... Uh, I wouldn't feel ashamed about it at all. Hey, happy to go. Happy to follow the Lord's command. 
I really need you. I need you to go with me. And I think it's important uh, to have good counsel. I think Barak recognizes that's exactly what Deborah is going to bring, good counsel. I mean, she's the wisest in the land, and he wants access to that wisdom on this dangerous mission. And it's a good thing to have someone around you who won't pull punches, who will shoot straight with you, who will give you insights that on your own you might not have come to, who will be honest, who will help you have the wisdom you need to take on whatever it is you need to take on. We need people like that. I need people like that. And to have a mentor or a friend who will walk with you through a situation that is potentially dangerous and very difficult, that's a treasure. Now, let me address kind of the elephant in the room. Okay, Deborah's a woman. I think we figured that out by this point. Um, Israel is a strongly patriarchal society. No one would dispute that historically. And again, I think we can learn from Barak... And by we, I mean us guys. I think we can learn from this man in the book of Judges. Godly men should lean on the wisdom of godly women. Godly men should, should listen to the godly women around them. Masculinity does not mean I call the shots. I do things my way. It's not masculinity. That may be the modern perversion of that or the historical perversion of that. It doesn't mean masculinity treating women like they are less than equals. Godly masculinity, at least part of it, is listening to your wife. Calling your mother for advice. Listening to the spiritual moms and grandmas who God has put in the church. So Barak, he's going to head into battle with his counselor-in-chief, Deborah. He has 10,000 soldiers. Sisera has 900 chariots. Doesn't seem like a fair fight, right? I mean, Barak vastly outnumbers Sisera. Eh, but truth be known, this isn't a fair fight because these chariots could cut through those infantry like a knife through warm butter. The chariots, certainly on paper, in terms of ancient warfare, would have the upper hand by far. I mean, an air, iron chariot against infantry is, is like, uh, in the ancient world, rather, it would be like, in our modern world, a stealth fighter or a cruise missile or a drone uh, against a slingshot. But with the military leadership of Barak who is being counseled by Deborah, the armies of Zebulun and Naphtali put Sisera into full retreat and cut them down. It turns into, into a massacre. And Sisera is petrified. We find him running for his life, separated from the few stragglers that remain in his army as the day goes on. Um, he is running away. The army is defeated, but the head of the snake, Sisera, is still alive. So there is still work to be done. He seeks refuge in the house or the tent of a Kenite. This is a non-Jew, but related uh, distantly to, to Moses. They, they, they connect to Moses. 
um, or were to the brother-in-law of Moses, let's put it that way. And so there's a guy named Heber, and his wife is Jael. They have these, these tents, this little camp here. And so Jael, uh, they receive Sisera into their, into their camp, and Jael invites Sisera into the tent. He is tired. He is exhausted. He needs a place to lay low because the Israelites are searching for him. And so she feeds him, she gives him drink, she gives him a bed to rest in, and he falls fast asleep. And Jael, you probably know this story, it's one that's hard to forget, she tiptoes into that tent, holding in one hand a long tent peg, a spike and in the other hand, she's got a hammer. And she hovers over this sleeping general, positions this spike just over the temple of his head as he lies asleep. And with all of her might, she drives the spike all the way through his head into the ground, pinning him. The Bible tells us in verse 23 that he died. Surprise, surprise. That's what happens when a stake gets driven through your skull. So the victory over the armies of Jabin and the death of the general, this leads to more victories and causes all of the tribes to kind of swell with courage and faith, and they eventually topple this King Jabin of Cana, and they find peace for 40 years. Now, I don't think it is a fair thing to do to take on this text or to even walk away from this text and believe that it is really speaking about women in ministry. Right? I, don't, I don't think that's a fair thing to do. Or that this text is here to inform us, primarily that it's here to inform us about male versus female leadership in the church. I don't think that's what this text is here to do, primarily. But we can make a couple of observations. First, I think we need to be careful, very careful, about bringing our stuff into the Bible. About laying our 2018 agendas on a biblical text. I think we need to be very careful about that. Um, we always want God's agenda to inform us and not our agenda to sort of inform the way we read the Bible. Um, we want to get the horse before the cart, so to speak. Now, if you have this position that women cannot lead, uh, that women somehow don't have the wisdom or the capability for leadership... Uh, that somehow they are inferior to men, then this text is certainly going to be a pretty big problem for you. She's the one that God called at this time, this place, uh, to be the voice for him, to be a leader, a judge, a prophetess. And it appears from the text that those who were under her rule recognized this, didn't have a problem with it. Absolutely, she's the right person. 
And she correctly notes she was the right person for the time. She says in her song in chapter 5, verse 7, she says, village life in Israel had ceased. In other words, the economy has collapsed. Things are bad. Village life in Israel ceased, ceased until I, Deborah, arose. Arose a mother in Israel. Things were bad. And they, the normal life of the nation had been interrupted until this mother, until Deborah was called out by God to take command. On the other hand, take the text seriously. You need to look at what her role was and what her role was not. Deborah's role in the story is not the role of a warrior. She's not Joan of Arc in the story, okay? She is a judge. But in one respect, she is unlike every other judge in the book of Judges. She is not the one leading the fight. She is not the one generaling the army. I don't know that that's a word. That's Barak, okay? So she is a leader. She is a prophetess. Um, she is not a general, and she is not a priest in the story. Okay? So the story challenges the traditional view that limits women to background roles in the life of the kingdom. And the story challenges the more, for lack of a better word, liberal view that dismisses the differences the gender differences between men and women as just being social constructs. Tim Keller um, writes this. He says, Deborah, alone among the judges, does not fight. She is not a warrior. She cannot lead the army and has to recruit someone whose abilities will complement hers which she does, Keller notes, admirably. So we can confidently, I think, walk away from the text seeing that there is no reason that women are not capable and gifted like Deborah to lead in prominent public roles, to be judges, to be CEOs, to be presidents, to be senators, to be board members of corporations, to be coaches. Um, certainly we can walk away and confidently see that in the text. But while ladies like Deborah in the Old Testament or Anna in the New Testament were prophetesses, prophets, they could rule in the civic life, even the civic life, life of the nation. Again, Deborah, um, there just aren't any female priests in the Bible. We've got a lot of priests. Don't have any female priests. So there is equality in the Bible, but there is not equivalency. There's a complementary nature. If you're traditional in your views, or for lack of a better term again, liberal in your views, uh, on leadership roles women may have in the life of the church, I think humility is the watchword here. 
I think for both camps and whatever other camps there are, humility is the watchword here. Again, we need to be careful about taking our views and our current debates and laying them on top of the ancient text and trying to gather ammo to support one position or some other position. I think that's a dangerous thing and not, a, not an honest thing with the text. And again, I don't think this kind of discussion about gender roles is really central to this story, to this text. So let's get back to what, what is central to this story, what is central to this text. It is the relationship between God and His people. What it looks like to live in fellowship with the Lord to be strengthened by Him, to live in connection with Him, and what it looks like to not live in fellowship with the Lord, to live in this, in this state where you are spiritually out of alignment. We are designed as people to live in fellowship with God, to live in harmony with His Spirit. That's how we were designed to work best. Now, the last words in the story are interesting, John Scott. Um, I, I might be wrong on this, but I believe chapter 5 is the only duet in the Bible. We actually have a duet. This is, I would love to go back in time and watch this, okay? Because Deborah and Barak are going to sing a duet together. That is Judges chapter 5. And so they celebrate this victory with a song they sing together. Their victory, the one that God gave them, the one J.L. certainly helped with. And so I want to close our time tonight with one of the lines from this song. It's Judges 5, verse 31. It goes like this. So, may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but may they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you tonight with our hearts bowed in humility, in adoration, in thankfulness. We thank you, God, for your great mercy. We thank you for the way you overlook our sin, even forgive our sin because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that grace that you pour out on us so liberally. We thank you for your justice. We thank you for your perfection. We thank you for your goodness. That you are a righteous God with the righteous purposes in this world. And God, we know that we are stronger and wiser and better when as they sing in Judges 5.31, we are connected to you. We are in fellowship with you and your love. And I pray, Father, that as the sun rises, that we will rise in strength because of that relationship we have with you.
And Father, tonight, we confess that Jesus is our leader, our Savior and Lord. And once again, we surrender our lives to Him. We cry out for Your mercy. We cry out for Your Spirit to do Your will in our lives. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand now and let's worship God together.